Welcome back to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast with Doug Winters. I'm your host, Doug Winters. Today is episode 61, and I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with an extraordinary young guy named Bill Coyne. His exact title is the Director of Business Development at Cloud Catering in New York, Cloud Catering Events. He's an athlete, he's an actor, he's an activist, but for the purposes of this podcast, he's done everything possible on the food side of the event industry. He's been a server, he's been a self-proclaimed cater waiter, which he'll explain. He was the captain at Cloud Events in 2012, and then in 2016 he moved into the front office and became the director of business development. One really fascinating thing on his bio that came out in our discussion was after getting his bachelor's at NYU for musical theater, he went to Columbia University to study under this very controversial acting coach who teaches clowning. Everyone from Sasha Baron Cohen to Emma Thompson, basically a who's who of the British theater has studied with this guy. So it is a serious pursuit. I believe that's an entire podcast by itself. But for now, let's jump right into my conversation with the multi-talented Bill Coyne. My guest is Bill Coyne, who is one of the major players in our industry. He's also an actor and an activist and all things that I think are very cool. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. (laughs) I was talking to our mutual friend, Jim McManus, who is... I mean, it's funny because in the book Hot Box, they kind of talk about him as this swearing sailor, uh, this Falstaffian figure of the special events industry who has a uh, similar appearance to Santa Claus. <laughs> to be honest, I have a very, very close relationship with Jim. He's really served as a mentor for me in the truest sense of the word. Oh, you heard what he said about you on his podcast. Yeah, Jim's just authentic. What I can say about Jim is he really loves people. He has a genuine interest in people and he's got a big heart and he really loves what he does. And what he does is connect people and build bridges. And um, that that's kind of something that I naturally uh, do as a human being. And it's something, it's, it's one of the reasons why we gravitate towards each other um, because we both kind of love seeing what happens when you put the right people in the right place at the right time. Well, which is very interesting in you being an actor, especially a theatrical actor. I always love seeing the bonds that are made. Uh, There's so many uh, events people who either have theatrical backgrounds or musical backgrounds because there's a tremendous overlap in the contexts of events and, and theater or, you know, musical performance, right? No question. No question. We have the audience and we have the, the people who are putting on the, creating the experience. And there's a previously agreed upon time and a place. Right. If you're not there, you don't experience it. Right. And then it ends. And that's why in light of everything that's going on, a lot of people are really hitting the fire and brimstone and the doom and gloom and the theater is dead and events are dead and incredible. I, know, I hate that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think what we're really going to see is this nostalgia created for the experience of assembling and just being with other people and sharing space. You know, we're, we're in this time in New York City where 
you know, which was ground zero for coronavirus, really. Podcasts are such a funny medium. It's not radio. It's not TV. It's not theater. There's no immediacy for it. In other words, people can listen to this a year from now or tomorrow. Yeah. And I think we should just talk for a minute about why we're doing this on Zoom when we live a half hour car ride from each other. Sure. The two things that literally never happened in our lifetime. Well, one thing never happened in our lifetime. The other happened, unfortunately the death of George Floyd during the day where four Minneapolis policemen pinned this guy to the ground and for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And it's caused literally worldwide protests in the best possible way. My hero is now the, the mayor of Washington, D.C., who made Black Lives Matter Plaza right in front of the oh, White House. That was so powerful to see. I mean, it's lit. It's unbelievable. You can't even, I mean, I think you have to be in like a helicopter to catch the whole thing in one photo. It's so big. Yeah, Muriel Bowser is, she's, she's my hero. Oh, she's, she's done such a, a tremendous job <laughs> in the center, in the epicenter of what I think we're, we're really combating right now. We are the most perfect nation, but we're still inherently flawed. Oh, deeply. It's really interesting because I think this forced us to look in the mirror and think about, am I a part of the solution or am I part of the problem? And I think what's really, really important and what's beautiful about this is it's really forcing us to examine ourselves and to educate ourselves. And I don't know if you've seen the, um, the documentary 13th on Netflix. Mm -mm. It basically correlates the creation of the 13th Amendment neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the united states so basically what the 13th amendment documents and basically um, argues for is that you know in lieu of being able to enslave african americans when when the 13th amendment was established that african american people black people in the united states were made to be criminals. They were charged with and convicted of the most petty crimes in order to maintain that stranglehold, that control, that grip on uh, African Americans here in the United States. And it's well, that's that's what Jim Crow was all about. Yeah, and it, it's incredibly damning. And the, what I loved about the documentary, it didn't discriminate between the. It didn't play politics. It looked at things with a very transparent lens when, when judging historically the Democratic and Republican leaders in power at the time and their contribution to the problem that we're, we're seeing now. And what's really amazing is I think we're on the precipice of some sweeping change, which I think we so desperately need in this country because it seems uh, every few weeks or every couple of months, there's something that happens where a, a young man or a young woman of color is, their life is taken for no reason and there's no justice for the people who have taken it, whether it's Trayvon Martin or uh, Eric Garner, or now George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Yeah, just so, so upsetting. And, and I think that's why we're seeing such widespread civil unrest, because this is a broken system and people are angry and rightfully so. It, it's a wild time in New York, and, and I don't mean to get dark and heavy on your uh, wedding no, no, podcast, no. but uh, this is this is what we're here. 
it's just it's really harrowing and um unfortunately in business it's not good to necessarily show your hand politically but i do think a lot of this has been in response to the rhetoric of the man in the oval office right now and and i really find it kind of disgusting and abhorrent uh when someone uses tear gas on peaceful protesters to clear way for a photo op where he holds the holy bible upside down and backwards upside down yeah reverend al sharpton said I've been a preacher since I've been 12 years old, and I've never seen anybody hold a Bible like that. Yeah, and, and it's funny, Stephen King, actually, of all people who you would think would not be on Twitter, tweeted, the extreme Christian right, if Barack Obama had held up a Bible backwards and upside down, you would immediately be calling him the Antichrist. Oh, yeah. We live in a really surreal, topsy-turvy time, and I hope that the pendulum swings into a more stable position and we can move forward and heal because obviously the country is in a, in a very divided and and it's just um it, it's really unfortunate but the, the thing that gives me hope is that black lives matter was started the protests were all black and it kind of looked like the 1960s black panther rallies now they're at least half white oh and young yeah holding black lives matter signs and it's like that literally does my heart good <laughs> you yeah know, i feel like if there was ever going to be change so this is no longer polarized well discrimination is ubiquitous and and i think that that's something that we can all acknowledge there it was the the march uh, in charleston that prompted that that car accident where that young woman was was uh, car accident yeah, yeah well the, yeah that <laughs> the, young that the homicide the homicide the vehicular the vehicular homicide but people i discriminated against people whether it's african americans whether it's the gay community whether it's the trans community the beauty of social media is that it allows us un unfettered access to one another and what i think is beautiful is that people can reach each other and mobilize and recognize that you're not alone whatever group you're in which is really beautiful and i'm friends with a lot of people in the gay community and it's just been amazing to see them take up arms and walk aside our our, uh, our African American our black brothers and sisters and say hey you've been oppressed this is not right you deserve the same rights as everybody else we deserve the same rights as everybody else we're standing alongside of you and and saying we are equals and we are not going to take it anymore and i i think it's great i mean i i think it's great i think it's what makes america america my father always instilled this sense of morality and my brother and sister and i he's like there are two ways to, to build yourself up to be the tallest building you can keep building yourself floor by floor layer by layer or you can tear everybody else down around you and i just think unfortunately we're in a in a place right now where the president of the united states is using his platform to incite violence to create civil unrest and to really create a separateness and i think this country is more divided than i've ever seen it in my life i'm turning 35 this summer and it's surreal i remember when i was a kid and we were in elementary school and they were trying to educate us on the election and it was george bush versus bill clinton and they talked about what the platform was and what this platform was and it was there was a degree of civility 
Yeah. But I, I think what we're in danger of is just really not hearing each other and not listening to each other. I really think that unfortunately this president has crossed the Rubicon so many times. There's there's so many that times, line yeah. of demarcation that keeps moving further back and further back. Hey, I thought with when Charlottesville, I thought it had gone in Charlottesville when he said good people on both sides. So I never thought that someone could so easily say that the Nazis were good. Well, that's a bizarre thing to say. It's, it's, it's crazy. You know, you look at the history of nationalist movements and, and what is it really? It's, it's people, oh, yeah. it, it's a charismatic leader, a brash leader speaking to a population in pain and then just kind of creating this movement of, of fervor by creating a clear enemy or an established enemy. You know, I, I just think there are definitely a lot of angry people in this country. And I, I think that Donald Trump was the wrong answer to the right question. I do think that Donald Trump surprised everybody and just how bad and incompetent he really is. He's evil. I mean, he wants to be King Jong-un. I mean, he goes to Paris and he looks at the Bastille Day Parade. He says, that's what I want. And have the military parade. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he wants to do. This thing happened, I think, at the exact right time. And if Biden can come out empathetic, I know what it's like to lose a child. I know what it's like to lose a wife. I know what it's like to lose someone that you love. And I'm on your side. Uncle Joe. Yeah. I think that's what, what co this country needs is like a hug. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and I. And this will be like a blip on the, you know, he'll go down like as Woodrow Wilson, you know, yeah. who played the birth of a nation in the White House while the Klan was marching on Pennsylvania Avenue in the 1920s. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, you know, what we need is stability and, and someone who can say, hey, I feel your pain, but it's not about uh, making someone else the enemy. I think there are two options, right? In every kind of crisis point, you can kind of tune out or really dial in. And I think it's very important for all of us to really tune in. Dial in. Yeah, yeah, to tune in, <laughs> dial in, and just listen. Just moving forward and creating the kind of change that we need politically, environmentally. I think we're really having to wake up as, as a society. I think ultimately human beings are inherently good. If you look at children, they're not judgmental, they're very open, and then they're conditioned to be ignorant or to be racist. It's like that Rodgers and Hammerstein song from South Pacific, which you've got to be carefully taught. Yeah, exactly. And um, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. That's right. All right. It, it, and it's totally true. And so much of it is about education and like just recognizing that having that degree of empathy and understanding that we're all in this together and we all have to move forward. And that's why I think events are so amazing. And that's why I think theater is amazing. It's creating a space where human beings can sit together and have a cathartic experience. And I think that that's the beauty of this movement, whether you're watching Fox News or CNN, but seeing these protests and watching the video, like watching the police footage, like you mentioned about, about George Floyd in the eight minutes and 46 seconds, that another human being was kneeling on his and, and choking him, you know, closing off his airway. And, and he was saying, oh, I, yeah. I can't breathe. And, and, 
you know, it, it's crying for his mother. Yeah. And it's such a visceral, it's a big guy. He was like a ball player. Yeah. Oh yeah. He played, he played basketball um, with um, Stephen Jackson. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody regardless of your affiliation, denomination, color who can look at that and not have a primal sadness, visceral feeling of sadness and having an emotional response to it. And so I think that that's what we need to lean into. You know, what's really interesting is that that people have listened to this 10 years from now or five years from now, or one year from now, because we tend to forget these things very quickly, is that right now, Bill and I are having this conversation. I'm wearing shorts. He's wearing a t-shirt and a baseball hat. And we're both in our living rooms chatting. And this is June. Well, you would be loading your van full of your instruments and all of your equipment exactly. and i would be sherpaing a crew of well-manicured cater waiters to the hamptons where we're taking care of the one percent for a wedding or maybe working at the new york public library for a wedding or going to the museum of modern art for a, a 600 person gala dinner i mean it's truly surreal the hospitality industry 14 million jobs you know just kind of i put on an instagram yeah it's the whole industry if the venue can't be open you can't have a wedding yeah you can't bring in food caterers can't come the band can't come no one can work oh it's it's a you full know? stop i was listening to bill Maher's podcast and he had uh tom colicchio on and tom colicchio is just talking about the kind of the fatal blow to the restaurant industry and how the government could have kept the supply chain active by enlisting restaurants to feed communities rather than creating these food banks at the schools. He said, I wouldn't be serving filet mignon to everybody, but for a certain price point, if the government was able to award restaurants these contracts, we would be able to keep our culinary team intact and produce food and fulfill orders for the very neighborhoods that we populate. And, you know, the chef of Prune, Gabrielle Hamilton, she wrote that really harrowing article in the New York Times that basically just said, the restaurant that has been my home for 20 years has ceased to exist. And even if on the other side of this, it could exist in whatever new way that will be, I don't know if I will be able to do it, nor will I necessarily want to do it. And she really just kind of lifted the curtain and allowed us to see what it's like to, to run a restaurant and how the communion wafer thin margins that restaurants previously existed under yeah. to just keep the doors open. I mean, it's just incredible gymnastics. I think the least stable thing you could do is open up a bar or a restaurant. The average life is like two, three years. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, that's why it's astonishing when you get a Danny Meyer who's able to turn it into a an empire. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an empire, it's yeah. surreal, but yet people still try. I mean, it's the same thing with theater. You know, only one in five shows on Broadway recoups their investment. That's not even you know makes profit wow. for the investors. That just returns the money, sans interest. It's really incredible, and yet. People want to do it. People feel the importance of it and the commitment to doing it because it's important. Like theaters endured everything. The television, now Netflix, there's more content than ever. Apple TV, yeah. Facebook has come up 
with a live streaming platform that they've developed where they're producing their own content, Hulu, Amazon Prime, all of these different platforms, but people still go to see theater. I mean, Wicked is selling in the high 90 to 100% capacity, and that show's been on Broadway since 2002. People love the live human experience because there's nothing like it. You can't replace that energetic exchange that happens between the audience and the players. Yeah. Since I started the podcast, what I found out is that there are people in the industry, people I didn't know. I didn't know who David Beam was. I didn't know who Dawn Stroud was. I didn't know who Jim McManus was. I didn't know who you were. I didn't know who Joy Locke was. The most interesting podcast I think I ever did was with David Beam. I said, you're really in charge of like a military operation. <laughs> there are thousands of details. And he goes, tens of thousands, hundreds oh, of thousands. Yeah. I'm... And he starts rattling them off. And he says, you take one tablescape, you got seven pieces of silverware for each, each person, you got five plates, you've got seven different glasses, an average flower vase might have 150 stems in it. So every single one of those things didn't just magically happen. Flowers oh, that came from Holland. They're all and, intentional. And, I think that that's one of the yeah. biggest things that's that's so important. I mean, you know, there's such a degree of orchestration that's involved. All of the different pieces and the synergy and the interdependence on accuracy and detail. I'm very fortunate to be very close with David, Christina, and Timothy, and DJ, and Ryan, and the many people who make up Team Beam. And it starts with David, you know, because it all starts at the top and he really sets the tone. And what I love about, about David is David really celebrates the individuality and strength of each of the people who work for him. David's one of the few people within the industry who I really did dial into when the coronavirus pandemic happened because, you know, he used his platform to be a voice of reason. To calm everybody yeah, down. Yeah, and, and to presence people to the fact that we do need to slow down. Because, <laughs> you know, as as, yeah. Jim, as Jim attested to in, in you know, the, the Wild West, for those of us on the back end of things, there's just, yeah. a, we're all the help. You know, and uh, there's a lot of shit that happens behind the curtain. It's a lot of running around and, you know, we're all like the duck, you know, above the water. It's placid and elegant and graceful, but underneath the, the feet are flapping to, to move us forward, feverishly so. It's so funny. You have no idea how many people that I've interviewed have made similar analogies. Like someone once said that it was like the famous thing when you see an iceberg, by the time you actually see it, you're only seeing 10% of it. So 90% of this thing, this mountain is underneath, ready to wreak havoc yeah. on the yeah. Titanic or whatever boat happens, you know, it's yeah. like iceberg straight ahead. Well, it's too late now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's well, it's interesting you mentioned, use that analogy because Jim McManus is talking about where he doesn't like the word pivot, but how we have seamanship. And I think a lot of that is riding the waves and listening to the wind, navigating our boat <laughs> safely through these trials and tribulations. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's just so important to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that, like you said, there's so many pieces and there's so much coordination. And so much of that is attitude. The fact is there, there are tens of thousands of details and shit happens. There are bridge and tunnel closures. There are bomb threats and police activities that close streets. There are freight elevators that break down. 
someone forgets the diced tomatoes or, or, you know, (laughs) Jim knows all about it, but sometimes the operation forgets the salad fork, or sometimes the event producer neglects to order the salad fork or the chair. And, you know, that's where the human element is so important. And the relationships are so important because no matter what lane you're in, we're all driving towards the same goal of producing a seamless event experience and delivering a warm hospitality for our guests and our clients so that they just have a really pleasurable time so they can go home and be like, oh my God, that's so thoughtful. And and a lot of that's just involved in the relationship. My background is I was a captain and a cater waiter. And I was going to ask you about this. I I, I was going to ask you about the hierarchy. You know, when people ask me what my son does, I said, well, until he becomes Aaron Sorkin, he's a writer, director, actor, waiter. And everybody just nods their head. It's like, yeah, that makes total sense because you can be a waiter because most things happen at night and the auditions happen during the day. That's why so many actors go into this, oh, into your business. Yeah. I was reading something about you and they said that you're a waiter and you're doing a lot of work in the Hamptons and a lot of very high-end stuff and you became a captain. So I can talk forever about musicians' roles and this is why singers get paid more than the guitar players. Even the guitar player has to shut up his equipment. So there is a hierarchy, but I never thought about it in terms of, of waiters. And a lot of times as a band leader, I'll come to a party, whether there's a party planner or not, I'll ask some of the waiters, who do I talk to? Who knows when the food's coming out? Because the first person who taught me in this business was this guy named Richard Melman in Chicago at this company terribly titled called Let Us Entertain You. And he owned half of the restaurants in Chicago with Oprah. I mean, this guy is a big player. And what he said to me is the key to a, being a good band leader is you have to know that you're servicing the party itself. I only look good. I'll never forget this. If I serve hot food, hot, and cold food, cold. If I'm serving ice cream, you know, whatever, some the fanciest ice cream thing, right? And you have everybody dancing on the dance floor. That could be amazing that you've got everybody cranked to this great, incredible music. But my food looks like shit. People get back to the tables and they got cold soup. Or a wilted salad, yeah. Or a wilted salad. So you have to work with one another. So... Tell me about the hierarchy of the weight staff. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like you hearken to sports podcasts and, and I, I played football and I was. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I was a football player and also in the school play. And I was also in the chorus. I actually wrote my college entrance exam about how I felt like a mermaid. Uh, how I was a, <laughs> how I was an acting, singing, dancing football player, and how the drama kids thought that the football players were jocks and idiots and you know whatever, yeah. and then the football players didn't understand the drama kids. And what I wrote my college entrance exam was about the parallels between the two and how they are much more similar than either party thought. And, oh, it's incredible! Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, similarly with events, it, it's a lot like a football team. In the kitchen, it's the Escoffier Brigade. You know, there's somebody, there's a hierarchy. Okay, start me from the top. What's Escoffier? He was a a French cook, and basically he's the person who created the kitchen system. Oh, Escoffier is a person. Yeah, well, that's how it it started. Jean-Philippe Escoffier? Yeah. (laughs) 
So the Escoffier Brigade system was something that was started in the kitchen, and it's basically the brigade de cuisine, basically starting with the executive chef who designs the menu, and the executive chef runs the kitchen, runs the operation. The chef de cuisine is responsible for creating the menu. The sous chefs assist, and then it goes down and down and down and down. Much Mm -hmm. like that on, on the service side, you know, I would say it's an evolving creature. So within every catering company, there are a couple different models. They have what they call an event director or an account executive. And in some companies, that role is split where you have an event director and an event producer. And basically the way I would break that up is the event director is kind of servicing the client. Whereas the event producer is organizing the internal details. So the event director is externally facing, servicing the client, leading the creation of the event, having the operational and production experience of knowing all of the different pieces coming together and the timing and action and the quantities of what items are required to produce certain food and beverage experiences in terms of glassware, knowing like how many glasses of wine does a person drink over a five-hour cocktail party into a dinner. These are all formulas that we all know, having gone through the growing pains of not ordering enough glasses or, you know, your company was (laughs) luckily enough, um, you know, you, you were able to have a template of how to do things. But for the most part, the event director drives the car and then the event producer makes sure that all of the internal departments are aligned. The kitchen has all of the details of the food quantities they need to. They produce the rental order. So they call Jim McManus and say, I need 400 chairs delivered to David Koch Theater at Lincoln Center at 8 a.m. The Santa captain's going to be there to receive them. This is another thing that people outside of our industry have no idea. Yeah, well, I mean, they that, just show up and see that, it completed. Yeah, they yeah. get there at 7 o'clock in a tuxedo, and it's all there. Yeah. Hours a day. Yeah, and there are so many hands that go into making the experience. So, like, what I was alluding to before is, like, depending upon the flow or the hierarchy of a party, it all depends. Like, within mm-hmm. a catering company, the sales executive, whether they're the account executive, the event director, they're responsible for the party on paperwork, and they do all of the advance work. And then on site, depending on what their schedule is, they're servicing the client. And then the captain is basically the quarterback. If an audible needs to be, you know, <laughs> I was gonna, on the just going to say that. Yeah. And it's a collaboration because the relationship between a captain and the salesperson is very important. And that's, you know, kind of how I came up in the industry. I was able to really understand and take on the success of event as if I had gone through the creative process alongside of the planners. And so this is what I want people to know. This is what I want to know, how similar it is to a sporting thing or, or to a theater thing. Like you're saying, the director and producer. Well, yeah. You know, it's like they've got I mean, it's, clearly it's, different jobs. One's a business job, one's an artistic job, you know? Yeah, it's all about the relationship. I mean, everybody's at the height of their game because the market is incredibly competitive. Everybody kind of comes from the same kind of family tree. You know, everybody came from glorious foods back <laughs> in the day. And you read about right. Donald Bruce White. And it, it's kind of funny because, you know, Sean Driscoll at Glorious Foods and Donald Bruce White right. were both song and dance men on Broadway and in the USO. So that degree of showmanship wow. and the coordination of all the details. 
you have to listen to the Beam podcast. Did you know that he's an actor? Oh, singer? yeah, David, 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 and I um, have spent a lot of time together. He's he's been. Incredible. I got him to sing a little bit on the thing. Oh yeah. Hey, I haven't. I have an idea. By the way, you ready? Yeah. Maybe we could do this together. I play the piano and a musical directed shows. One of my first jobs was playing for Actors Equity, and I got to conduct Elaine Stritch doing Broadway Baby. Oh wow! And John Rate doing soliloquy soliloquy from carousel wow and he was the such a humble guy and he says oh you must be a fan of my daughter and i said well i am but i'm more a fan of you oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Said, this is a dream come true to conduct you doing this yeah and i said how do you want to do this i said i'll, I'll just follow you and he says no 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 i'll, I'll just follow you because that song has a lot of rubato spots oh yeah she is a girl you know yeah. <laughs> it's like oh yeah and david started singing and I said to myself, holy shit, he's really got a good oh, voice. Oh, he's so talented. What if we did a thing like they did for that Sondheim thing? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was great. It was really cool. You have a great voice. Oh, thank you. We'll get people like you, like David. I think that would be incredible. And maybe we can combine it with your you know, New York Serves or Serves. Serve NYC. Yeah, we, we started a, a GoFundMe effort um, to get some relief to the, the cater waiters and the freelance event people who have been displaced. I love that expression. Cater waiter? Cater waiter. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's the lingo. That's what the kids say. That's what we've all been saying. I'm a cater waiter. <laughs> that's what the kids say. Yeah, I'm a cater waiter. <laughs> You know, the captain's kind of the liaison between all of the parties. And like I said, it's kind of an amorphous scenario, depending upon the event. You know, like we do the right, American Ballet Theater's Spring Gala every year and Fall Gala. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing event at the, the Coke Theater. A lot of coordination, um, an incredible Which is event. hysterical, by the way, that it's the Coke Brothers. Yes, exactly. It, well, you know, yes, exactly. What used to be Avery Fisher Hall? Is no David H. Koch, yes. But uh, at the ABT Galas, uh, an event production company called Buckley Hall Events started by Anita Hall and Linda Buckley, and they basically do a comprehensive service for nonprofit entities. So they do the invitations. Oh, wow. They're intermittently involved with the fundraising, the table settings, who is sitting where, the seating charts, all of that stuff. There's so many different entities that you're collaborating with. For the ABT, we, we know the executive director, the director of development, the event designer, Bill Tansy, has been designing the ABT galas for years. And then sometimes uh, you have to liaise with the event manager or the technical director of Lincoln Center. Restaurant Associates is the exclusive bar provider at Lincoln Center. So you have to liaise with them to get the wines for the table service for dinner. So there's all of these parts. And then sometimes, you know, you're doing a wedding in the Hamptons and there's a social planner like Sophia Crocus and she has Ron Went design. So you're, you're taking Ron's lead on when the tables are ready to be placed. And, and, you know, different planners do different things. Like sometimes at a David Mon event, you come in, the table has been marked, all of the flatware is down, the tables are all set and you don't have to do anything. Other people, the, the florists really? come in and put the centerpieces on and then, you know, they've designed the tablescape and the glassware and the silverware, but then all the cater waiters place all of that on the tabletop. It's, it's really, truly an event by event personnel by personnel experience. It would be like if you were the band leader and you have a different ensemble coming in every time. 
but but you're in charge. You're doing Rhapsody in Blue, and it's the same song, but you have different players who are working on sure. it with you. So it, you have to have a degree of sensitivity and pliability. And that's why I think a lot of the people, the social planners in particular, are all incredibly emotionally intelligent. They're, they're people whisperers. They can intuit and interpret the incredible emotional nuance of each bride and each groom and the innate family hierarchy, you know, is the mother of the bride. She's really driving the car on this wedding. And so she, yeah. you know, she's working indirectly through the bride, but she's really taking care of the mom. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's yeah, an yeah. incredible, it's an incredible. And you get to sense that. Yeah, you really do. And and it, it it's kind of amazing because you get to learn and, and I've had a really incredible and fun ride. I worked in the Hamptons for a, a caterer named Janet O'Brien. She uh, operates out of Sag Harbor. And oh, there, all right. Tell me about the Hamptons. So you, so you have a 908 number. Yeah, so, I'm from the Jersey Shore. So you're a Jersey kid. Yeah, I grew up at the okay. Jersey Shore. I went to NYU and I graduated. Uh, then I kind of made my living doing a lot of shows. I toured the country doing a show by Joe Iconis, getting my equity card. I've been working with a group of actors. We've all been friends for almost 15 years, doing shows and workshops and readings and annual Christmas show at Feinstein's 54 Below that I've been doing for 12 oh, years okay. now. Yeah, and it's just, it, it's really crazy. And so, you know, when I came back from getting my equity equity card, uh, the Lehman Brothers debacle happened and the financial crisis oh, happened and a bunch of 2008, theater, yeah, 2006. And, a, and a bunch of theaters had shuttered and the summer before I went out, I had started doing catering and then I naturally took to it. And when I came back, I subsidized my artistic pursuit with freelance catering work and people saw that I was competent, that I was smart, that I had leadership capabilities and that I was emotionally sensitive and was able to kind of lead a group of people to make the event happen and deliver a really great experience for the clients. And I started getting requested back to certain private homes. Oh, is that the way it works? Yeah. Is that the way it works? So well, people say, you know, I, yeah, I, I worked mean, with Bill. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Know, well, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but it, no, it's I, I know because it works the same like with me and they say, Are, oh, I want that singer. Yeah. And and that's kind of how it happens. And it's kind of funny because at Cloud Catering, I had captained a wedding back in 2014. And then I moved in the office full-time in 2016. And then last year, 2019, and the client had their sister was getting married. And they were like, we had this guy who captained our wet, uh, you know, our sister's wedding. And he took such good care oh, of our wow. family that we want him. And so, you know, little did they know that I was the person on the other side of that email. So I wrote back and said, hey, you know, I'll, that's good. I'll it was me. Involved. I'll be involved, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not captaining your wedding. I'll, I'll try to leave the captains. You know, I, I, I try not to micromanage, but that's kind of how it works. And there are a handful of amazing people who I learned uh, how to captain under. One of them is John Amidro. He's the maitre d' for Olivier Chang catering. Oh, wow. and, and John is kind of the, the guru, the whisperer of, um, you know, many of the social planner, planners who work for Olivier Chang always request John because John knows how to take care of people. And John also knows how to take care of the people who support the event. So all of the cater waiters really love him, look up to him because he always takes care of you. He makes sure that it's a humane experience, that you're fed, that you feel good, that you're 
communicated to in a respectful manner as if you are an intelligent. You don't feel like a servant. You don't yeah. feel like a servant. Yeah, and he doesn't talk down to anybody. And at the end of the day, like regardless of the inevitable truth that we are the help, there are certain clients who make you feel like you're part of the team, like part of the family. Mm -hmm. And that's like what's amazing about yeah. it, specifically the planners. I mean, you do want to have that professional distance with, with the end client. But I loved working with those planners who really treat you as if you're part of the team and you kind of assimilate into their organization and represent their brand. And it's a really cool experience when that happens, when you get a good crew who likes to really work together towards that that goal and it, it's fun it can be a lot of fun i always pride myself on having all the best musicians and, all, and i always used to say that i feel like the manager of a minor league baseball team <laughs> there's not one person that wouldn't rather be on the yankees yeah. than on you know the triple a farm team but when they're there they're going to work their ass off because this is what they need to do to a you know keep your chops together as a singer yeah or as a musician you, you gotta play yeah you know you can't get better just practicing at home i do think that there's something that no one ever says which is that none of us don't cry into my you know soup because i i had my you know i had opportunities and i've been successful in other fields but there's not one of us that does this business that wouldn't rather be on broadway yeah that wouldn't rather be a backup singer for Beyonce than, than singing for me. And, and I know that, and I appreciate that, and I treat them with respect, and I pay them well, and I, and I make sure that they're treated well because of that. Well, I mean, I think that that, that that is absolutely true. But what I think is really, like, you know, we talked about earlier, like the, a theatrical experience is the agreement between two people coming together for a certain time and a certain place uh, for a finite mm -hmm. point of time. If I were to tell you the resumes of some of the people who work at Cloud Catering, your jaw would just drop. One of our bartenders was in the Pulitzer Prize winning drama Sweat by Lynn Nottage at the Public Theater. Oh my God. And then on Broadway, one of our cater waiters was in the HBO special The Normal Heart and has been on Pose uh, on FX. One of our uh, one of our main female captains was in the national tour of Pippin and was in Wonderland on Broadway. So I totally <laughs> agree with what you're saying, but you know, yeah. by nature of the work, there are going to be downtimes, yeah. and that's what is awesome because you know, I, I think how you do one thing is how you do everything. And like you said, everybody would rather be doing something else, but they're going to do the best that they can possibly do because they know that this job is what subsidizes the pursuit of their dreams. And that's why I started that GoFundMe campaign, Serve NYC, because all these people are my friends. I've recruited all of these people to come to cloud catering and work because they were the right kind of people who I wanted to be at the events with us. They were warm, they were open, they were friendly, and they were not divas. So somebody would <laughs> would drain a slop into a slop sink at the end of the night. Or if the event planner told us it was an, a party for 150 guests and 200 people showed up and we had to wash forks for whatever reason, that person would do it with a smile and without being a pain in the ass about it. Because that's what I did before I moved into my role. And it's just, at the end of the day, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And also, I, I think having the attitude 
of I'm happy to be here creates more opportunity for you in every realm. Because yeah. the truth oh, is, yeah. none of those people could be found at a nine to five corporate job where they were watching the clock every day. No, I think they would hang ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And so I think like everybody kind of just assumes that posture of, well, this is what I need to do until that time when I have a show and it will be there on the other side of when I have a show and I'm going to have a great time doing it because it's a community and an ensemble, just like the ensemble of the theater production. So it's very similar. Then understudying, you know, you never know when you're going to go on and you know, you're not yeah. on the key. You know? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. But that's interesting. I always wanted to talk to someone about that and I'm glad we, we got a chance to do it. That it's not it, when movies like the wedding singer come out, the Adam Sandler movie. Yeah. It literally adds to the myth that the only people that play weddings are just frustrated rock and roll singers or, or you know, no. just people who can't make it in other situations. And you know, one of my singers went on and was up for a Tony in The Color Purple. Oh, yeah. It's it's unbelievable. It, it's what it's what a lot of people do. All my singers are all constantly on the borderline of like, I just got signed to a label. Yeah. it's But I'm still going to be there Saturday night. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, success, I, I think they say success is when hard work meets opportunity or when luck meets opportunity. And mm -hmm. um, David Beam will be the first one to tell you that there was a time in his career where he slept in his flower yeah. shop. Yeah. And it takes time and hard work and persistence. There's a lot of synergy between building an artistic career and building a, a catering company. You have to build your brand you know, at Cloud Catering and Events. You know, our managing partner, Will Kay, kind of had this vision for delivering a Michelin star restaurant experience in the context of catering. And so we kind of re-envisioned the whole food production while he was doing that. And our, our exclusive corporate account is the NASDAQ market site. We've been there for... 10 years of the 11 year operation. We've been the longest catering company to occupy there. We service all of NASDAQ's internal functions, executive meetings, boardroom meetings. For example, when GoPro listed uh, as a stock at right. NASDAQ, the NASDAQ events team called Will, our managing partner, like seven o'clock at night and said, Will, we just found out the CEO of GoPro is obsessed with Rice Krispies. And we had this thought, what if we produce a mountain of Rice Krispies for the IPO? And Will just said, sure, no problem. <laughs> and he, he called our pastry chef and said, you're going to kill me. But if you could make this happen, it would be so amazing. And, you know, our pastry chef, and then we built, I, I mean, I don't know, it was 40 pounds of Rice Krispie treat into a mountain. I could picture like a theatrical, like it raining Rice oh, Krispies, you know, yeah. <laughs> from the ceiling. Like, but that's like the balloons. kind of stuff you get asked to do, you know, and that's what's what's exciting and what's fun about in special events because we are hired in service of a story for an event and and translating that through food and beverage we did a um a dinner for omega watch they were launching a new series of watches that had different corresponding diving oh, depths wow, okay. and so yeah. the the watch faces correlated to different diving depths and they started at a lighter shade of blue and then went down to a very dark metallic black and so we curated so it's, oh, it's also letting you know that 
you're, yes. you're about to die. Yeah. You're about yeah, to run yeah. out of so oxygen. It goes black. Yeah. <laughs> so we basically curated a menu that was thematically in tune with that. To the colors? Yeah. To the colors, but also to the aquatic life that populated the different diving depths. Like that's the oh, kind okay. of level of detail and intention sure. that, you know, we can bring to an event. And that's when it's really cool when you're cooking with gas, like curating these experiences that are bespoke and custom because it's exciting mm -hmm. it's engaging nobody says just cocktail party for 500 people and you know burgers and tacos is fine and yeah whatever know, wine whatever. and beer yeah. yeah like nobody likes anything canned it's when you like we we had a, a technology company that deals with cybersecurity, and they asked us to produce their holiday party and it was a jumanji themed party so we had <laughs> We had, you know, curated these cocktail stations where it was called Pits of Prey. And the whole theme of the party was choose your own adventure, whether you wanted to play it safe or be daring. So, you know, we had typical chicken and beef options, but we also had alligator and squid and and, oh, and you wow. know, like so so it was it was an opportunity for people to get adventurous. So that was fun. And and that, you know, you when you're at the event, you see the excitement and the engagement and and that's ultimately what what all these uh, corporate event planners are, are doing there's an intention to the event like to create an excitement about a product to get instagram stories going from the influencers that they've flown in for the event to drive traffic to drive intrigue to create more <laughs> sales you know there's always yeah. an intention for for an event we were supposed to be doing the new york botanic gardens spring gala this year and then the coronavirus has canceled oh, that yeah. but they're going to honor Kusama, the Japanese artist who does the spotted pumpkins. And so we, oh, were, okay. yeah. Yeah, we were trying to create some authentic Japanese cuisine and trying to integrate pumpkin into it in spring. You know, how do you do that? Like, where are you? <laughs> oh, that's right. It's is a there, full is, thing. Yeah, exactly. So these are the things like, what is like a pumpkin and what is available in spring? And can we source pumpkin from somewhere where it is spring when it's and fall what's somewhere pumpkin else? color? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, all these are all the things that we have discussions about with our chef. They all want to strangle us, but it, it's all in service of delivering a good time. And I say that jokingly because the chefs, you know, always want to deliver a superlative experience and they like peeking their head out from the kitchen and seeing the guests just make that, oh, this is so good face. And, and that's what we, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. we all really, so that's why we all do it. That's why we all do it. All right. At a 500 person gala, at a 250 person wedding, how many waiters are you talking about? Well, it, it all depends on the budget, <laughs> but also there are certain formulas you know, at like a 500 person dinner, like for example, at the ABT gala and mind you, like I've been out of captaining for a couple of years because I've been on the okay. sale, the sales side of things. But at, at the David Koch theater, I'll use the ABT gala for an example, we split the kitchen. So it's almost like we divide the room in half and have two different parties. So we have two kitchens producing the same food at the same time. We almost have a race wow. for the serve out time, but we have two <laughs> lead captains divide the dining room. And then there are a couple of floor captains. We have a sanitation captain on each side. Which does what? The sanitation captain, like you would imagine, like Sanit, yeah, they, take care of, they take care of all of the rental items, the dirty equipment, like, you know, all of plates and silverware they coordinate all of that so it's tidy and clean they dispose of all of the garbage at the end of the night they organize all of that they coordinate the delivery the santa captain is one of the most important people because oftentimes at, at a gala 
they arrive to check in the rental equipment. So they are there literally checking off a delivery order, seeing that everything get that is delivered off the truck is on our checklist. And so that way it's not 6.30 with a seven o'clock dinner and we're looking for a butter knife. Like that doesn't happen. So what I'm trying to get people to understand is all the things that go on behind the scenes. All right, so let's just say at this ABT thing, which is probably absurdly over the top with a ridiculous budget and 500 of New York's one percenters, how many waiters or staff as well as bartenders and... So I'll raise the stakes. Our, fir <laughs> our first year of producing the gala, we sold the initial proposal at 725 guests. And by the time the event came, we had 1,100 guests. So we had to not only occupy the grand concourse at the Coke theater, but we had to go right. into basically ringside seating uh, on the first I know mezzanine. that building very well. Yeah. So basically our ratio is one and a half waiters per table, which means that for every two tables of 10 people, there is a wine steward who, when the waiter is running the food, is able to service the water and the wine for each table or do bread service for each table. So for example, at the ABT gala, let's just say, mm -hmm. let's make it a flat thousand. Okay. We would have 150 waiters. So one and a half waiters per? Per table of 10. So 100, 10. 100, 100 tables, we would have 150 waiters. So there really is a mathematical. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously like, you know, when there's a nonprofit, there's always a budgetary constraint. The ABT entity is looking to raise funds. I think they raise 80% of their annual budget through their galas. We do discounts and ratios of down to 1.25 waiters per 10 guests to kind right. of minimize but then again, you don't service costs. You don't want to. Yeah, you, you don't, don't want you don't want to do it wanna, too much right. because you feel it. And that's the one thing that people don't understand. And that's the way I, I say it, because the service costs are the biggest costs because you have the people who deliver the food, you have the people who cook the food, you have the people who serve the food. So that's oftentimes the biggest line item on the proposal. But I always say we can do it. We can, we can cut costs there. We can trim to a certain degree. We have our standards that we won't go below, but right. at the same time, you will feel it and your guests will feel it. It's mm -hmm. that, it's that difference between the chairman of the board reaching down and grabbing his wine and noticing that it's already been filled seamlessly without him having to, to uh. flag somebody down. The server who knows that grandma likes a mint tea and won't, won't be involved in the coffee service. It's, it's those things, those little details and that extra love. That's the way I always try to describe it. That's a beautiful way to describe it. So at this 500 person thing, do the math. At a 500 person, we would have 75 waiters. And that doesn't include the captains and the SANIT captains. And SANIT captains have assistants who are helping them organize everything. So there are a lot of hands. There are a lot of hands on deck. So the captain is in charge of this whole? The captain gets the playbook from the event planner. They get the book that has the timeline, the menu, all of the work orders from the rental companies that says this glassware is corresponding to this course. This is the charger. This is the salad plate that goes with the fish course and the salad. So we leave the charger down and we strike the salad plate and then we place the fish course, which is the same plate. And then we strike the charger after that 
and then the main course plate is filet mignon and that goes down without the charger. These are all the little things that are on the paperwork and as the captain you are responsible for making them manifest on site. Literally game plan. Yeah, you, but you have you, to study. Yeah, of course. Captains are given the paperwork in advance of the event. Um, we always pay a, a, an additional hour of their pay rate so that they review the paperwork that's part of the game, like the planner emails anywhere between a week to 72 hours in advance. So that way, you know, the captain has plenty of time if they're working other ships or events, they have time to study and, and call any questions. And for an event like, um, like ABT, we often have a service meeting in advance where we'll have the lead captains and the Santa captains do a walkthrough of the event with uh, either just the cloud personnel or with Buckley Hall uh, or both. But we basically do a rehearsal and we run through everything. And on the day of, the captain will do a mock dinner where they, they bring out empty plates or they mime that they have oh, really? plates and, and do the choreography of the service. Oh, yeah. Oh, literally, like yeah. a tech runther. Yeah, exactly. The whole thing is very choreographed. And so the captain kind of runs that playbook and runs that rehearsal. And they're the dance captain and the stage manager and the director and the musical director all at once. One last thing. When a waiter... I, and and that even sounds dismissive. Uh, we say server. Is, is... We say server now. I'll Thank give you. you the greatest example. If you're doing okay. a wedding in the Hampton, you leave Manhattan at 7 in the morning or 8 a.m. in the morning before you beat the traffic on, on 27th. You have to get yep. out of the congestion at 495, and then you don't want to be stuck on Route 27 on the way to Montauk, you know, if you're going to East e Hampton. Ever. ever. If a cater waiter wants to work the whole shift and they've communicated that with the, the staffing manager who has booked them, it's not uncommon for a cater waiter to leave Manhattan at 8 a.m. And then they could arrive as late as 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, depending on whether they work the whole shift or not. Because think about it. They get to the Hamptons, let's say... It's a Saturday morning and there's a lot of traffic. They could arrive at 11 a.m. They could arrive at 10.30 a.m. Or they could arrive as late as 1 in the afternoon. And, and hopefully by the time they get there, the tent has been popped. Lighting's all set up. And depending on who you're working with, the tables might be popped. The, the service team arrives and they start setting up the dining room and the kitchen. Popping tables, putting cushions on chairs. When you say popping tables, you literally mean taking it from being folded yes, to unfolded. Yeah, that's what they say, literally popping, popping tables. And that's assuming that it's a folding table. Sometimes the designer has built a table, or sometimes it's a barn table, a big farm oh, table, yeah. and you just sure. have to open them and then fold the lever to maintain the legs in their place. Sometimes the designer has already done that, and you're responsible for just setting the tabletop with with the silverware and the flatware and the glassware, setting up the bars, the linens. Do you have to steam the linens? Is it a big, big rattan linen that's almost like a burlap bag consistency? You know, is it an Irish linen? And then you set up the kitchen. And typically what we do is we provide a breakfast, whether it's bagels. And then typically we have a staff meal. Mm -hmm. And then we have our service meeting where we run through the run of show. We then break off and do smaller group meetings. The crew is usually divided into, um, if there's a ceremony on site, we have the cocktail reception or the ceremony team break off and service the guests who are arriving right. in the cocktail reception area. And then we have the final setup group 
which is responsible for doing the finishing touches on the dining room, salt and peppering the tables, icing and watering the glassware, chilling the wines, making sure the bars are all in place and that all the, the liquor has been distributed evenly. And then you're off to the races. And once you get to that point, that's when the event clock really speeds up. And then the event concludes. Yeah. And if you're a captain, you can strategically negotiate with the planner internally to break down certain things as you go. You clear the glassware in a certain choreographed manner in tandem with your Sanic captain. You typically clear the bar glasses from the table first and then the unused wine glasses on the table. And then you take your, the white wine and then the red wine. And then you take the water glasses last and coffee cups and mugs. Never do you strike the linens from a table while a guest's in the room. Sometimes we have those clingers who don't want to leave the event, even though the music has stopped playing. Then we, we break down and we make sure that the, the garbage has been properly disposed of. And if you're in the Hamptons, there are all kinds of rules. You know, people rent these tipsters. Wait, what's a tipster? There are mini dumpsters. And then we pack up all of our inventory and then we leave. We've left the city at 6 a.m. and gotten back at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, when you're a cater waiter, you're a young gun, young buck. You can work that 20 hours and make half of your rent in one pop. And then you can rest and relax and afford to live in the city and, and take your voice lessons and go to your acting classes and everything else. That is great. You have literally said everything that I wanted oh. you to address. <laughs> All the oh, things great. I've always well, been I mean, curious it was, about. It was a pleasure. I mean, there's so many great people in the events industry and so many talented people. And I think we all just come together in service of our clients and make something really special. And it's very much a theatrical experience. It really is. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, obviously Jim McManus is a big champion and advocate of the events industry. And I appreciate him uh, referring me. And he really is. He's like the, the, the ambassador. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he really loves it. And it's genuine. And I think the most successful people in this industry genuinely believe in taking care of people and make it a point of pride. And they really enjoy the experience of delivering a good service and a warm hospitality and people really respond to it. So you, you know, you know who they are. <laughs> I think you've interviewed a few of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the worst job in the catering business, and no matter who you ask, it's the staffing manager. Oh, why is that? Well, they juggle everybody's schedules and cater waiters are all models and actors and musicians and they get last minute bookings and spaces. And sometimes these events are booked a year in advance. Uh... But if somebody gets an audition to be in the next Bradley Cooper movie, you better bet, you better <laughs> gonna bet take that it. they're, they're going to take that opportunity. So the servers are the most important brand ambassador for any company because they can literally make that incredible first impression and that lasting impression that, that makes somebody want to hire somebody again. That's a brilliant way to end this thing. Well, Bill Coyne, this, is, this has been terrific. Thank you so much. All right, so how do people follow you? As an actor, as an activist, as and as the director of sales at Cloud. The Cloud Instagram is at Cloud Catering NY, and my personal Instagram is at Bill Coin Speaks. So that's my Insta, and I'm on Facebook as Bill Coin, and you know my website is BillCoinSpeaks.com. Cloud's Instagram is CloudCateringNY.com, and we're really trying to rally and, and do a lot of 
great stuff. And like I mentioned earlier, we, we are doing this campaign that's a GoFundMe effort. We've raised around $7,000 so far for the out-of-work event staff. And oh, that that's great. website is www.serve-nyc.org. So the fundraiser is still open. If you have any available funds, would you be able to support these incredible artists who subsidize their artistic dreams and, and endeavors with the special events work? Both uh, opportunities are no longer present for the foreseeable future for these people, and they're incredibly talented and valuable members of our of our community that enrich our culture in New York, both through event work and through their artistic endeavors. And so they're very much in need. And I grew up in that world, and so we're we're trying to do stuff to help them. So well, that's if beautiful. Can, if you can contribute, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, it's like I said earlier, they're the most important part of the event. And when you're working a 20 hour shift in the Hamptons, you're really able to build a relationship with somebody. <laughs> yeah, so. that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bill. This is great. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, likewise. Okay, Be good. Bye bye. I told you that was a good one. Bill Coyne. So I am at Doug Winters Inc. on Instagram and my website is DougWintersMusic.com. Let me know who you'd like to have on as guests. We're, I'm really trying to drop one of these a week. So please spread the word and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. But most importantly, everybody, please stay safe, stay strong. And I will see you next week. Bye-bye now.